A warm welcome to Ask Agra Family History Question Time, a series of podcasts recorded in a panel discussion format featuring key professional genealogists from the Association of Genealogists and Researchers in Archives across England and Wales, who will be joined by special guests from the world of family history. Our panel today will focus on the area of land records, including tithes records and other maps. Land records and maps have been used to keep track of the transfer of land for centuries. Where these have survived, they can help with research into not only your ancestors' lives, but the lives of whole communities and the changing times in which they lived. Our moderator is Agra Council member Carol Kerry-Green, who is based in Hull and runs her own research practice, CKG Genealogy. She is, by her own admission, passionate about maps, and she could talk about them all day. Joining Carol is another AGRA member, professional researcher Cathy Souten of Bucks Research. In addition to her genealogical research, Cathy is also a qualified architectural historian from the University of Oxford, specialising in the history of houses and land for homeowners and commercial clients, and she is a regular speaker on the subject. She holds a degree in medieval and modern history, and of course understanding land records is key to her research. Alongside Cathy is Sue Adams of Family Folk, who is a fellow Agro member. She specialises in using manorial land ownership records to track family relationships. Her master's degree thesis demonstrated how to connect tithe maps and apportionments and land valuation records and maps to manorial ownership records using geographic information system software known in shorthand as GIS. Grace Tabern of Grace Ancestry is another Agra member. Based in Northwest England and with over 15 years experience, Grace holds the Advanced Diploma in Local History from Oxford University and also specialises in non-conformist research as well as tracing company and business records. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to our moderator, Carol Kerry-Green. Hi folks, we're talking about maps and land records today. So thinking about what different types of land records there are and, um, you know, what are the most useful for genealogists. Cathy, what's your opinion, given your experience of doing house histories? I think there's a whole host of records that are useful both for genealogists and for people who want to find out more about the history of their home because um, the commonality of the records, because often with house histories you'll find you want to find out more about the people who actually live there as well. So types of records include manorial records, tax records, valuation records. Um, they were produced in the, the first place, obviously not to help the likes of us as genealogists or house historians a couple of hundred years later, but they were produced primarily for to, to record transfers of ownership of land and also for tax purposes. Whilst they record the owners of the land in a lot of cases, they also, in for, for a number of records, record the occupiers as well. So even if your ancestors weren't particularly well off at all, you might well find them referenced as, as tenants of a property. So in terms of particular records, one of my favourites are manorial records, because if you find a reference in any document, say for instance a will or an electoral register, to copyhold land, then that's like a light bulb moment where you think, ha there could be manorial records here which can prove relevant. Mm-hmm. So the, the manorial system was established by the medieval period where the Lord of the Manor basically held all the land and there were 
various manners, often within each parish, so it wasn't specific um, parish-based, but a common type of tenancy within the manor was copyhold land, and over time, every time land was um, transferred by a copyhold tenant to someone else, the records were formally registered in the manorial rolls, either as a surrender and then subsequently as an omission. So those records can be really useful for determining relationships and whatever, because sort of every time the transfer occurred, it, it can provide lots of genealogical information about who the previous tenant was and who the, the new tenant um, was who took over. Um, so I know you've got a lot of experience also of using manorial records. I think you pretty much agree with what Cathy was saying there? Very much so. I'm biased, but manorial court roles are just fabulous. You can find people who aren't necessarily resident in the in the manor itself as well, particularly in the later periods. I've got examples of people who are as far flung as India and Canada from the same family. Something you need to be aware of with the manorial system is it's a hierarchical system. You've got the king at the top, the lord of the manor, and the tenants, and they all have an interest in the land. And below that, there might be some subtenants as well. And that's the sort of simple sort of pyramid mm. of ownership. And that's something yeah. that you need to bear in mind of when you come across an owner on an electoral roll or, or one of the tax records, it might not necessarily be quite the person you expect it to be that's recorded as owner. For the tax people, it's usually who you can get hold of. Yeah, so it could be quite um, useful for various different families and occupiers of houses and everything like that. So where is the best part, best place then to find these records? Is it the local archives, the national archives or other places? And are any of them available online? They're widely scattered. Because the Lord of the Manor's property was his personal property, the records that survived may well be in his personal archive that might or might not have got to a yeah. local archive. There are quite a few in the National Archives, particularly places that were Crown Estates, but there is a wonderful tool, Manorial Documents Register, that lists where the records for all of the different manors are, and that's online for most counties, the exception being Lincolnshire and Cornwall aren't complete yet, but they're being worked on. That lists everything that's known about, which is tremendously useful because it is a hard task to find them otherwise. I've done some work on a Lincolnshire manor and I wasn't that impressed with manorial documents registered before, but now I am highly <laughs> impressed with it. That's good. So it's very useful for anyone wanting to know, you know, wanting to find records of manorial records where their ancestors might have lived. Well, leading on from looking at archives, I'm thinking um, the other thing to do with uh, land records, of course, is the indentures, because at the time when land was transferred from one person to another, an indenture would often be made out. And these can be very, very interesting. And you can find those in, uh, in local archives. Cathy, have you sort of like used those quite a lot? Yes, again, when I do house histories, they're invaluable for determining who may have owned a particular property. I think the problem with, with deeds is that a lot of the time they haven't survived because there's no requirement to keep old title 
deeds now under the current land registry rules. So often they were just literally chucked away. And I've I've heard of cases that there's big collection relating to the Ashridge estate, where I think um, they were on a rag and bowman's cart and being carried off. And somebody, I think local historian, pounced them and thought, oh, we'll, we'll have those. And they ended up sort of being deposited in the relevant local archives. So a lot of the time it can be frustrating because you can't find relevant deeds. But always have a look on the the local archives catalogues to see if uh, once you've established you may have owned a plot of land or property to see if there's any relevant deeds and and bear in mind I think that for a lot of small cottages and that sort of thing that they were often part of a big estate so you may not at the outset think there's any relevant surviving deeds but they may be part of a much bigger collection there's a whole host of different types of deeds available there are some good books uh, and websites which provide more information about them um, but it's, it's quite a big subject it, it uh, is a, a large mm-hmm. subject yeah and know Grace you've mentioned before that um, you've found a lot of deeds in the local solicitor's office what you usually find often with solicitors is that they'll have them bundled together so it's like Christmas all at once because you can follow it they're all bundled in one thing and it's over a long period of time for this one particular property or piece of land and you've got everything all bundled together, which is really, really good. You know, if you've got the abstract of, of title as well, which lists everything that's occurred, that's a really good thing to come across as well. Yeah, that sounds really useful because you can then follow either a family or a piece of land back through time. The area where, where I live in Yorkshire, um, we're quite lucky in that we've got the deed registers in North, East and West Yorkshire. And uh, I also understand from Sue that they've also got them in Middlesex. Certainly in Yorkshire, they're, uh, they're a boon, really, because once you can get, you know, you find one person, if you're looking for a particular person, you can, you can you know, look in the various indexes. Um, in Yorkshire, they're all on in books. They get a big book brought out to you or several big, big books brought out to you. And using that, you can then find the Register of Deeds themselves, which, again, like Grace was saying, can, you know, take you back quite far with the actual property. And I understand, Sue, that the Middlesex ones, the indexes are actually on microfilm. Yeah, they're on microfilm and you can, well, from one property I was looking at, I actually figured out that, that the people who occupied it weren't actually the owners. But but there are thousands and thousands in the Middlesex registry. Yeah. And, and you, you look up the index, which is on microfilm, and then you, the deeds themselves, they're, they're memorials, so they're a sort of shortened version of the deed recording the main facts. But something really interesting that I found there was on some of the deeds, they list who the subtenants were, the leaseholders. And there's quite a lot of leasehold in London, which is one of the things that can make tracing London properties quite difficult. It can. I mean, certainly here, majority of the property around here is freehold. So it's, you know, sort of you don't have a lease. There's no landlord, if you like, you know, wanting their share. So that's that's quite quite handy. But if you've got leasehold property, then you've got someone not actually just owning the property on itself, but somebody who owns the property and then another person who owns the land. Um, and then they've got to pay a lease to that person. Am I getting that the right way around? Yeah, the leaseholder would traditionally pay a money to the freeholder. Nowadays, of course, there's often this thing called a peppercorn rent. So there's, it's effectively nothing. I live in a leasehold flat. I don't pay the, the freeholder anything. 
and the lease is for 999 years so I'm really not worried about it <laughs> but but that that can be an issue with a much shorter lease if you've got leases that are for only a few you know 10 20 30 years or whatever it could yeah. uh, could make could make a difference then so when you're looking at the the deed registers in in Middlesex you can sometimes find this information out from them yeah but that information is not indexed the index only tells you about the main freeholder yeah and the leaseholders are a detail in the yeah. in the deed. Okay. Right. The leaseholder traditionally would have paid us some money, but a lot of leaseholds in modern times are a peppercorn rent, which is effectively no money. So the ones in Yorkshire, there are three deed registers that are kept at the East Riding archives in Beverley, the West Riding in Wakefield, and the North Ridings in North Allerton. So they're all, all fairly easy to access. Where are the ones for Middlesex? The Middlesex ones are in the London Metropolitan Archive. So that's fairly easy access in the London area then into it. Yeah. And what? yeah, no, that's good. So, I mean, there aren't unfortunately anything online for these. But what you can find, I know the archives in Beverley, they've got a very good leaflet that tells you how to go about finding the deeds that you're looking for. And these are available online. So that's that's good. And I've also always found archivists in all three depositories to be very knowledgeable and uh, very helpful when you uh, mm. ask a question of them. They're especially helpful when you say, I've read this and I can't understand. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Grace? Have you had any experience with using deeds or anything like that or the uh, indentures we were talking about? I have used them for various things. And as you say, you can trace a, a line right the way through in particular, I was tracing a, a line of farmers and obviously using um, indentures and wills and things like that, was able to trace the line right back to the 1500s, which was yeah. really good for the family that was researching. So obviously farmers, yeah. uh, when, you, when, you, when you're dealing with them, the ancestry for, for farms, there's a lot of good information out there. That is one of the, the things to, to mention is that a lot of these records, although they're very useful, very interesting, but once you put them in context with other records, like other parish records, wills and manorial records, they can show a whole picture of um, our ancestors' lives. And of course, some of them also come complete with maps. Some of the deed registers have got, you know, fold out maps in them that show where a row of properties has been built and or what could be have been on there previously. So we're turning more now towards the 1836 Tithe Commutation Act, which commuted the so like tithes that were paid by mostly agricultural people to the, the, the church. Now this came in as a result of the fact that it was getting very old-fashioned. But as a sort of thing for us family historians and social historians, is the actual records that have been deposited in various archives, including the National Archives. Cathy, so like, I'm sure this must be something you've used on a regular basis. Yeah, it's, it's a go-to record, certainly for house histories, because I, I always compare them to producing jigsaws, and it's, it's a real corner piece for me to look at the, the tithe maps and associated wards, because at the, the date they were produced, they show who the owner of the relevant plot of land was and who the occupier was as well, and provide details about the extent of the land, what it was in, in essence, and uh, how much tithe was paid. So 
they, the records themselves, there were, I think, three copies produced originally. One copy is held by the National Archives, but they have now been digitised by the genealogist website, which is a really useful tool because you can search by name um, or as well as plot or, or just look at um, an individual parish to see whether that there was a tithe map produced for that. So if you're doing ancestral research, you can look at the, the site and just put in your ancestors' name to see if they appeared as owners or occupiers. And then the digitised version of the, the map and the associated award or apportionment will provide more details. There are copies too in the, the local archives. So if you can't or haven't got a subscription to the site, then you can look at local archives copies as well. Yeah, you can, you can order them when you go to the local mm. archives. And again, the um, catalogues of most local archives now will have uh, details of these. I should imagine that this is something you've used uh, on quite a regular basis, Sue, yeah. in your research. Yeah, yeah. the tithe maps are, are an entry point into land ownership because it, it actually tells you who owns something at a particular time and it confirms that they're in the parish that you're looking at. There are quite a few online ones now. There's the wonderful Welsh tithe maps, which are online, and there are several counties. Worcestershire is one that I've used. You, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned another couple. Cheshire Archives and Local Studies Library and Norfolk also have some interactive maps that have some enclosure and tithe maps on there. Uh, so that's quite useful. One thing I found with the Cheshire ones when I was looking at them is that you can look at the tithe map and then you can overlay a current ordnance survey map. So you can like move the dial, if you like, backwards and forwards. So you can see what's actually there today from what was out there on the ground back when they did the maps. I was thinking also the um, enclosure awards and enclosure maps. And some of these were earlier than the tithe maps, so some of them happened at the same time. So they can be used in conjunction, I would imagine. Have you had any experience of using them at all, Grace? Enclosure maps, they're different than the tithe maps, but they equally have uh, good information. But what you find with enclosure maps is you might just get them for just a small piece of land or for a larger part of the parish. And they tend to really just show the, the owner's names because it's about the enclosure part of it. So you need to look at the award that goes with the map and how that explains what the map's all about, really. Sometimes they're, they're coloured in, you know, they're quite pretty enclosure maps. They've <laughs> got lots of colour on them as opposed to the, the tithe maps, but you, you find that they're all in different, drawn in different scales and they're not as neat, really, often as the, as the tithe maps. A lot of them were um, done by local surveyors, which is one of the reasons why they, they changed from place to place. And uh, I mean, you know, sort of the enclosure was mostly for um, the benefit of, you know, farmers or uh, landed gentry who had more land than um, other people. And uh, that's why they wanted to enclose properties rather than having the old medieval system of having a strip land from one place to another. I mean, it could be, you know, you could have one strip at one end of the village and another strip at the other end of the village. So uh, when you're looking at maps on the enclosures, it's interesting to see where the land was and where they've now come together. Also, the enclosure maps can be about a sort of large-scale development. Uh, my study site is, on, is in the Lincolnshire Fens, and the enclosure was all about drainage, yeah. building great big sea walls and ditches. 
That's it. I mean, there was a lot of drainage of the fens in Lincolnshire during the 18th and 19th century. It was all of, and bringing, as you say, bringing land that was previously unusable into production. So it's good to have that information. Um, did you find much information on that in the actual Lincolnshire archives or is it mostly national archives you've used? Well, that one was in the Lincolnshire archives. That's scattered again because it depends on who the land belonged to. Mm. And there's other information with enclosure because if it's a parliamentary enclosure, there's an act of parliament to go and look up as well. The thing to remember about enclosure, it's about what it looked like after they'd hammered out all the agreements about, I'll swap this strip for that strip and consolidate it so I've got a nice little compact farm here. And a lot of that was about compacting farms so that it was sensible to, to work. That's it. I mean, there would have been a lot of inquiries and local meetings and, you know, so some things like that are not new in our society where we all get together for a local meeting about what's happening in the area. So there would have been a lot of that to get the the land sort of like all organised, as you say, into areas that could be enclosed. And if you're lucky, all of the toings and throwings of that might still exist in the commissioner's records. Yeah, if you're lucky. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and otherwise you have to like read through an act of parliament, which isn't always the most interesting of, uh, of things to, to look at. Yeah. yeah, the awards themselves can be quite complicated too. It's, it's worth a close reading. Yeah, I think, so, I think it's also worth checking to see if there's any estate maps and associated records sort of linked in with that, because you can find they go back to the the early 18th century or occasionally before that. So if you find that there wasn't an enclosure award made for a particular parish or area of parish or a tithe map for that matter, sometimes you can find that there are estate records in the local archives um, where maps would show who, who owned the land and sometimes they do provide details of the tenants as well. So following on from that, we could look at more recent records of taxation there's the 1910 valuation records on the National Farm Survey, which took part in the 1940s. Could you tell us more about this, Cathy? Yes, the, the valuation records, again, that's another corner piece of the jigsaw, as far as I'm concerned, for house histories, in that they're not dissimilar in format to the tithe maps and awards, in that they were produced in the 1910, between 1910 and 1915, following the the people's budget that David Lord George introduced where it was effectively, it was a new property tax that they wanted to introduce. So they produced a series of, um, based on the last available ordnance survey maps um, nationwide, and then plotted them so that every plot of land was given a specific number and corresponding books that there's two uh, different versions of the um, the valuation records. There's one set that are held at the National Archives, which are the valuation maps, and then uh, what are known as the field books, which provided details about each individual plot and gave information about who the owner was, who the occupier, what the value of the plot was, and also included a description about the um, the property or the, any buildings on the on the land and what the rateable value that sort of thing is. So yeah. they're useful um, source. See, there's been a you know very useful record to have, and also they could then you know tie in with our sort of like electoral registers and rate registers and and even you know the census. So if you're tracing someone backwards, 
if you can get a, an in from a you know sort of a record of the valuation survey you could then use the information to uh, to take the research further back exactly yeah. they're, they're a really useful source for for family historians house historians whatever because once you found information about who um, where somebody was living at that point, you can use the other records to take it back yeah. or take it forward. Sort of, you know, you can then have a look at the map. And again, some, most of these are actually in the local archives, I believe. Yes, there were two sets produced. One set's at the National Archives, although it is starting to be digitised now by the genealogist again. So at the moment, they've only got um, a few areas covered. I think they've got certain London parishes and then a few rural areas like Buckinghamshire. But that's obviously an ongoing project. So in time, they'll presumably cover all of the, the records, the, the National Archives Evaluation Records. But there's also copies held at, at local archives as well. The equivalent of the, the field books are called the valuation um, books, and they're not as detailed as the, the field books but they do record who the owner and occupier was and details about where the property was and the um, the estimated gross value and uh, rateable values, that sort of thing. Which can tell us something about our uh, ancestors' uh, financial standing mm. in the community. Um, sort of uh, anything on, on that one, Grace, have you used the 1910 valuation at all? I do use the rate registers, which obviously it's a, you know, a similar ilk where you can fill in the gaps between census records you may not find your ancestor in a census but they're in a rate register and so you've got then where they're living and also you know you may see in a census that it says they're a proprietor of houses come across that fairly often and then you can look in the rate registers and you can see the owners of the properties I had one in particular and um, looking through discovered that they'd got properties in lots and lots of streets but also by looking at that you could also see that their children had also bought properties so they were kind of expanding their family empire across the city (laughs) and so using them they're not the things that you would see in the census records because obviously that's just saying where someone lives but by using the rate registers it shows the owner and the occupier um, and you can work your way through and find people who are missing in census records as well yeah. by using the rate registers. That's it. And some of those are available online. I'm thinking yes, just, they are. Uh, the Manchester and uh, Liverpool. Liverpool, Liverpool, yeah. And of course, you can always find them in the local archives as well. Um, what about the National Farm Survey? Have uh, any of you uh, sort of used this at all, no, Cathy? Yes, again, it's a useful source. If, you, if you're researching a farm or farmers or, or farm tenants or whatever, then they can provide some really interesting information. It was produced in the Second World War, I think, 41 to 43, as a result of, obviously, once the war broke out, the, the amount of food being imported drastically reduced. So there was an urgent need to cultivate land and... As a result, all farms, I think over five acres of land, that there were assessments carried out to review how profitable the farm was, um, the yield was from the farm, and see if it could be improved. So the, the records, again, are at the National Archives, so you really need to go there to, to view to them, them for England. But 
they they provide information, lot, lots of useful information about the, the extent of the farm, who the owner was, who the tenant, if that differed, what crops were produced, what cattle, how many tractors, how many horses. <laughs> um, and also they, they were um, categorised into how well the inspector thought the farm was being managed. I think there were three categories and the, the last was poor and quite unfortunately quite a few were categorised as poor. So then provided sometimes comments about why they thought it was poor. So you get some quite rude comments about the farmers. And I had one case where I felt quite sorry for him because I think he was quite a well-known dairy farmer in the area and he had exhibited his cattle at uh, shows before the war. But because he then was told to turn to, to growing crops, which obviously wasn't his natural forte, but the inspector sort of said he was, um, he was a bad farmer and... Uh, Okay, well, looking as we sort of like, you know, today, we've got so many access to so many different sort of like sources that we can use and records and resources. And I'm thinking more, you know, modern maps with Google and using it to show um, how things have changed over, over time. And I mean, that's so easy to use these days. Grace, is this something that you, you use on a regular basis? Yeah, I use maps all the time. I think, well, we all use maps in different, you know, ways, but uh, the Google facility is really good because you can personalise a map to the specific research that you're doing by using the, the online tools that it has. And so, for example, in my own research, you have a map of uh, Great Britain and my ancestors. They started in Cornwall and they moved across to London and then into Essex and then up to Manchester and using the Google Map facility, you can plot it exactly, the migration, and you can see the distances that they travelled, and you can get a really good picture of it as well. There's other facilities as, as well, which we've kind of um, touched on, is where you can overlay old maps on modern maps and vice versa, so that you can really see how it relates to the modern day. And that's really important when you're doing your research to understand where it is you're looking. So many people get the wrong areas that they're looking in um, and they pick on the wrong family and it's important to use the maps to actually pinpoint the actual area that the family were living in or that they may have moved to and modern maps are really good for because we understand the modern area we understand the area as it is now so if you can translate it onto a modern map it helps you to visualize better what it is you're looking at and what you're researching. That's right. I mean, in some of the older maps that are available online, particularly thinking of the uh, National Library of Scotland, where there's several, you know, Ordnance Survey maps available for each area, these can really help when you're looking at a census or a land record or parish register record and it mentions a particular farm or little hamlet. And it can really help if you can look at these old Ordnance Survey maps and then match it against where they are on the the modern ordnance survey or Google map. You know, there's all sorts of maps that we can use and all sorts of tools. You can get into it a lot more by buying various different things, but for those that are actually available at the moment, it's very easy, I think, to use Google and to get a lot out of it. Okay, so um, has anyone else got any of the modern kinds of maps that you'd like to talk about? Cathy, what about coming to you? Yeah, I think another one from um, the Second World War I'd like to mention is the um, the bomb maps. There, there's a really interesting, useful website, Layers of London, which, as the name suggests, just covers London. But um, they've got maps there showing where 
bombs fell during the war and you it's very interactive so you can play around with it and sort of zoom in and out sort of see where areas were hit yeah, I mean, there's also one for Hull, which is my hometown, which was hit mm. very badly during the war. So I, I know I've used that one. So they are very useful. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think there's a few others. I think there's one in Buckinghamshire as well. Then they're, they're not maybe as detailed as sort of some of the others, but it's worth sort of seeing if there's one for your local area, certainly. Yeah. What about you, Grace? I mean, um, the any other maps that you'd like to mention, modern ones that we can get access to or online? Um, there's the booth survey maps, which are basically in the for the London area. Um, obviously, I don't cover the London area, but they are very useful maps to access to give you a greater understanding of, of that area. Yeah, I mean, the, the good from the point of view of looking at people's sort of like financial position and some of the books that accompany them can make really interesting reading because sometimes they actually went into some of the uh, the rookeries, as they used to call them, some of the really bad areas of London. And they would actually give the names of some of the tenants and where they were living and the types of properties and, you know, how many kids they were where, what jobs they were doing. So there's a lot of information in the, uh, in the books that accompany them. You're right, they're very useful and very interesting. From my own point of view, one of the ones that I've found recently is um, been doing some research into my local railway station, uh, which is called Hull Paragon. So one of the things I was looking at, I wanted to find out who actually owned the land where the station was built. And when you look at a map going back to the 1840s, when the station was built, it's just a big empty square. And I'm thinking, well, there must have been somebody who owned that land when they put together an act of parliament to uh, put in the idea of having the station built there there was also an accompanying map which is very useful with every single property was numbered and there was a book and each number corresponded to an owner a tenant or some of them were just gardens or you know workshops and things like that and in the end it turned out the person who owned that sort of like square of land actually lived at one of the properties on the main road and he was a local builder and it was his company that actually was contracted in the end to build the station so yeah those kind of maps as well very useful um so have you got anything you'd like to add just you know to anything else modern maps well the modern technology is something that we should pay attention to we've alluded to with layering and adding your own bits to maps that's something that that you can do a great deal with. I mean, I've layered tithe maps and the 1910 maps and compared them to and put them into real places. And that, that way I've been able to track family between those two dates, even though I didn't have the property records between them. That's, I mean, again, that's really useful. Okay, thank you. Just to, to wrap everything up then, I was just thinking, come to you each in turn, what's your favourite sort of map? Grace, what about you? My favourite that I use all the time are the 19th century Ordnance Survey maps. No matter where I'm researching, I'll have a map up as well. Because if you link it with the census records that you're looking at, you can literally more or less walk the walk that the enumerator did to take the census. You can really get a feel for it. They're they're fantastic. And the National Library of Scotland is is a really good facility for that. And uh, the genealogist is something that I use a lot as well. Yeah, how about you, Sue? I think my favourite map of all times was a estate map for a manor that actually told you exactly where the manor was, which can be a bit tricky. And it also had written on it all the things, you know, so many eggs were owed to the Lord for the rent of that manor. So it was, 
it dated to the early 1600s, and there were two or three later versions. Something you need to remember about maps is that they can get separated from the original records that they were kept with, because they're usually much bigger. And an estate map is typically a couple of metres either way, so it fills that map table. One of the ones that I really enjoy looking at is estate maps, because there's so much information on there regarding you know, sort of what is on the estate, who rents the land from various people. Um, what about you, Cathy? Have you got anything to, to, to finish with here? Yes, I like estate maps too. And some of the really old ones, you can get wonderful depictions of houses on them, which may not be necessarily accurate, but they are wonderful. But I think in terms of what I use most for, um, well, certainly to sort of start off my research to the sort of valuation records, I find are really useful, the, the maps there. So which were based on the, the 1890s Ordnance Survey maps in the main, but they are a, a go-to for me when I'm sort of starting my research generally. I think, you know, it's really important not only to see where we are now, but to, to see what was happening in previous years. OK, well, thanks, everybody. This brings us to the end of our discussion. If anybody has any questions generally relating to our theme, please do get in touch by email to askagra at agra.org.uk. We can't answer your specific brick wall type questions, but we'll endeavour to answer more general ones. The contact details of our panel are on the podcast page of the Agra website. And it just remains for me to thank our panel, Cathy Souton, Grace Taburn and Sue Adams. My name is Carol Kerry-Green and thank you for joining us today.